Hi, uh, welcome back to the Herd Mind. We are still hours in talking about um, the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and we are just reaching 2016, which is when Marvel started Phase 3, uh, which I think is maybe the most exciting uh, period of Marvel so far. Uh, the first one is Captain America Civil War, although um, we know that a lot of the production staff while they were working on it referred to this one as Avengers 2.5 because it isn't, strictly speaking, a Captain America film. The whole lot of the Avengers are in this and the story, while you follow Cap more than the others, the story is just as much Tony's, I would say. Um, and. Uh, caused a lot of arguments actually about who uh, who's on the right side of this because it really is quite an interesting conflict of ideas that these guys have. Uh, so <laughs> before we do anything else, who's on the right side? Uh, which side do you support? Are you Team Cap or Team Iron Man? Um, well, this is one that I think is quite interesting actually because what we said about the Winter Soldier is that it was very black and white and it wasn't very grey. Um, Civil War, I think, is the opposite. I think Civil War is very grey. I think both sides have very valid points. And um, both sides also have really wrong points. And so I actually think it's quite hard to actually pick a side because I can sort of see both. Very diplomatic. <laughs> but as a lifelong Chris Evans fan, I'm slightly on Cap's side. <laughs> but that's for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> I'm on Tony's side because I think I think that these guys do need to be regulated to be put in check, and I, uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, Tony's side has a much more valid argument. Um, I think it's hard to pick a side, really, um, because, yeah, neither one of them, uh, actually properly explains their point, really, because they're both yeah. emotionally compromised. I always think um, that every time I yeah. watch the film, I'm just yeah. like, just talk about it for five minutes. <laughs> and the closest we get to them actually having an intelligent discussion is after when Bucky's in um, captivity. About probably comes about halfway through the film, and they're sat alone in that conference room and they start having a conversation about it. And they both acknowledge that there's flaws in their viewpoints and they'll have to hash things out. Um, and it will require a lot of fine tuning, but they have to get this ball rolling. It's important that they do something. They can't carry on the way they are. And both sides yeah. acknowledge that. But then Bucky escapes and all goes to hell, and they revert back to their original "you're wrong, no, you're wrong" viewpoints. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I think it is actually hard to pick a side because you never actually get that um, yeah. sense of debate and what their what their full viewpoints are. So I, th I think the film pitches it um, sort of quite interestingly in that you can't. Um, you know, because obviously you, you you do support both of them because it's Cap and Iron Man, but um, it never, um, you know, puts one up on a pedestal and vilifies the other. It does it. It shows that they're both um, just being a couple of pigheads really, and need to um, mm. need to just talk it out. And when they do start to get that chance, they do start to make strides. But um, but yeah, they never get to finish that conversation, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah that's that's interesting actually because there's. Um, there's two ways of looking at it. One is that it is Tony versus Steve. And in that case, I think you're right. I think they're both too close to what's happening. And they're both, like you said, emotionally compromised, um, particularly where Bucky um, or um, Tony's parents are involved. Uh, but on the other hand, when you actually look at the arguments they're making, I'm totally with Jonathan. I think I think Steve is completely wrong. Um, and, and 
I said at the time when we talked about Winter Soldier that looking back, um, the the way that film handles uh, extremism in Shield actually looks more realistic as time goes on. As as you look back on this film from where we are now, a film about uh, the avatar of America and Americanism. Um, saying that he should be allowed to do whatever the hell he wants without regulation and yeah. he should get to make decisions <laughs> on the world stage. Yeah, he should be able to operate in any country whenever he wants, without sanction. Uh, yeah, uh, who, who who are the UN to hold America down, right? Uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a really bad look. <laughs> but at the same time, because of the time he is from, um, and because... Um, because he's seen people, you know, be like on a register before. He, you can see why he doesn't want that. That's the argument from the. That's the argument from the comics, though. The, yeah. The, the um, Sokovia Accords aren't really a reg. It, it made more sense in the comics, I think, where it was about registering superheroes with the government. This is about regulation and yeah. like, culpability and. Although. I- Having seen The Incredible Hulk, I'm not sure General Ross is the man to be in charge of anything. <laughs> just just drop the Hulk on a city, it'll be fine. Really, yeah. really not a great strategy there. Yeah, he's yeah, not really but, got the moral um, high ground. Yeah, I'm looking forward yeah. to the day he turns into Red Hulk and then he's kind of like, oh, oh yeah, mm, kind of the worst. <laughs> but what yeah. did we think about other parts of the film? So forgetting the actual whose side you on, what about the yeah, other parts of the film? So like... Because um, we said a lot of the Avengers are in this, but I actually thought it did a very good job of still feeling like a Captain America film. Because I was really worried that actually, it, it um, Cap was sort of going to be a little bit sidelined because there were so many characters in it. But actually, yeah. I thought it did feel like a Captain America film. Yeah, for it to instead uh, become an ensemble film. Yeah, it's good. It it follows Cap, um, and he and we have information the other characters don't because he's sort of solving a mystery, kind of. Um, yeah. And of course, a lot of this. Do you know if you listen back to us talking about Winter Soldier, we barely talk about Bucky, and that's because I think Bucky is pretty much a nothing character after um, appearing in uh, First Avenger, where I think he's really good. I think since he's come back, I kind of can't really stand him. He's just this guy that we're told to care about over and over again, and never shown enough reason to. And it. See- and so much of the plot hinges around that, and that yeah. it, it's Steve that Steve that cares about him. So that feels like a Captain America film in that way. But mm. I just I can't feel that with Steve because I don't care See, about Bucky. I've I've heard the argument that um, Bucky and Steve don't even really seem like friends. Like Bucky's got a lot more like sort of chemistry with Falcon, mm. um, and some people sort of say that as a flaw. But actually, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, so it could actually just be that Bucky wasn't brilliantly written, but I sort of think it works because Bucky's not met Falcon before, which means Falcon doesn't have all these expectations of him that Steve has. And so I actually think it's quite realistic that Bucky would be a lot more natural with Falcon and a lot more comfortable with Falcon. So I, in a way, I actually think that works. That makes sense. Um, yeah. I like I like also that they, they're both sort of in the same position as being... Uh, the best friend of this guy that neither of them can possibly live up to and so they're yeah. both a bit overshadowed and so they can they can sit together in the car while uh, Steve goes out and does his Steve thing and things like that. Uh, going back to the previous point about um, ensembles and you know, did we think it felt like a cat film um, yeah I'll be honest and say I thought it felt like a trial run for the Avengers 3 um, 
yeah. and in mm. that it was a successful trial run because up until that point we'd never seen him juggle that many characters before because um, when you look yeah. at it and the Avengers are, are one or two don't compare in terms of the the roster um, but the fact that they were able to and you know we, when the movie news was breaking and more and more characters kept getting added oh Black Panther's going to debut in this Spider-Man's going to debut in this oh Scott Lang's back as well all that kind of stuff you just thought how are they going to handle this this is this is getting ridiculous but they I thought they did it really well um, yeah. and it gave me a lot of confidence that they would be able to pull off um, Avengers 3 and they'd be able to bring in the Guardians and, and other people like that fringe characters um, and and uh, have them all interact and not make anyone feel shortchanged. So I, I yeah, well, it is still, as you say, focused on Captain America. But overall, I can see why people call it the Avengers 2.5 because it does feel like a can we make Avengers 3 work sort of a, a tester almost to see um, see what the limits are in having a having a team up. Yeah. Oh, there's so much to talk about in this one. We need to talk about new characters yep. that are introduced as well. Yeah. Um, um, I was just gonna say. And one new character we're not introduced in this film is Black Widow, because she's consistent. <laughs> this, and that's the end of this running gag. <laughs> this is the first This is the first non-Avengers film where I was really pleased to see that she was actually consistent again in this film. Yeah. And yes, that is yeah. the end of this running gag. <laughs> well, picking up slightly on that running gag, we're also introduced to a new character in uh, Sharon Carter. Oh yeah, there's, there's lots of strong feelings here about Sharon Carter. Well, that's because in, in The Winter Soldier, she sort of wasn't the character. Yeah, yeah, she's just she a was... spy who lives next door. She's not really someone. Yeah, and then so in this film when they kiss and then she's like, "Oh, that took you too long," and I'm like, "They didn't have any chemistry in the Winter Soldier." What? Uh, and... and because it's like just after Peggy's funeral and he's just found out she's Peggy's great niece, you're like, "Ugh." It's yeah, no, just, that's... it felt a bit gross. That's never not creepy, and I don't. If they'd had chemistry in the Winter Soldier, I don't think it would be creepy. But because they didn't, really, it really feels like he's only interested in her because he's found that she's related to Peggy, and that that's just that's just that's just gross. Yeah, you get sort of a um a vertigo uh feeling from it. He's, he's using someone else to fill the role <laughs> of a different woman. But the actual new characters in this film. <laughs> this is this is weird, actually. How this film is sort of we're going to drop in these two new characters so that we sort of have a running start when they get to their solo films it it's maybe a way to avoid just making origin stories over and over again yeah yeah, um, yeah. because um of the two i think black panther's more successful spider-man feels inserted he's in one major scene and it does feel a bit like it feels a little bit like hawkeye in thor where they've uh, just sort of push this character she into this one scene, and he's he mostly he's CGI. They they can just sort of add him, um, and I, I I'm not sure what order things happened in. I don't even know if he'd been cast um, when they were putting him in scenes. If you see what I mean. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, we do know that he was uh, an insert as well. So yeah, but he still it still works. Like I still enjoy him being there, and he he's uh, fun and um, moves like Spider Man, and yeah, it, it's just Talk good, to, like good to have him there. <laughs> But yeah, that, he, he feels like he's pushed in, whereas Black Panther's a lot more integral to the plot. Mm. Yeah. yeah, Black Panther is very important to the plot, yeah, but... so you, could, you couldn't cut him out of the film. He sort of has to be there. With, with the new characters that are introduced, uh, Black Panther and Spider-Man, I think they work with... How they're introduced works with the, the, the plot of the film, what we were talking about before. Because 
um, Black Panther is invested in the ide- ideologies they're fighting for because you know he he also has a personal reason for being involved. But yeah. um, I feel like the rest of the teams, they're invested in the pe- the people. They're siding with the people, not the ideologies. And I, yeah. it's sort of weird in the way it does that because um, I don't know. It just doesn't feel right somehow. They've been friends for years, and then suddenly, like these two people have a disagreement, and they they have an absolute smackdown brawl, and they're beating the crap out of each other because they're siding with the people, not the ideologies. It feels sort of wrong in that sense. Um, hmm. But I think the way Spider-Man is introduced, it works as well because he's, you know, he's been brought in by Tony, and he's like, "Well, what, what, what do we do? Do we just run at each other? Do we, do we fight? What is, what's hmm. going on here? I am not invested in this. I'm just here for kicks and giggles." Well, to um, another extent, that works for um, Scott Lang as well because he's he's brought in as, you know, he's we see his obvious um, hero worship of Cap. Um, yeah, I like again. the idea that he's sort of blackmailed into it as well like yes, Falcon yeah. probably said I know what you did and I can get you in real trouble if you don't come help me out yeah. Which... well that's that's how Tony does it as well yeah but as you say those characters with longer lasting relationships um, it's weird with Hawkeye it kind of feels like he could have sided with anyone it's just Cap asked him first like you never really he again he or he almost feels a little bit like an insert character like Joss Whedon left him in a place in Age of Ultron that they didn't really know how to get him out of, so he's just like, hey, I'm here, Cap told me he needed help, way and... Yeah, and then when, when um, she says, what are you doing here? And he just says, disappointed my kids, and that's it. We don't actually get an explanation yeah. of why he's there. Yeah, whereas a lot of them you can see, you know, they pick a cycles of loyalty with a character, like um, oh. Rhodey with uh, Tony and um, Vision with Tony as well. Um, I don't know. It works for me. Rhodey works. A Rhodey, yeah, uh, with a military a man. Military. And... Yeah, I, yeah. Military I can man. believe he he would believe in a chain of command and believe in um, like instruction from the top and stuff. I I can see that. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. With, also, um... actually, Black Wid- Something really interesting happens with Black Widow because she's siding for the whole film with the ideology. She's on Tony's side because she she thinks that is the correct the correct way to to look at all this stuff but when it comes to a crux point when she's asked to side with a person she sides with cap and she lets um him get away from black panther yeah and i think i think that's an interesting dynamic for that yeah yeah she trusts cap to do the right thing whereas she believes tony is correct which is different yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word for um, it, yeah. Which which brings us, hopefully, uh, we should probably very quickly say, there's a big fight in the airport. It's pretty good. Uh, the Russo's action is more interesting and superhero-y this time, uh, but they pair them off into like, so it's like a bunch of mini little fights. And I heard people complain about that, but actually that's very comic booky. so yeah, I'm yeah. sort of okay with it. We got yeah. our debut <laughs> of, uh, of Giant Man as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I did just want to briefly say they did an amazing job of making um, romantic chemistry between an actual human woman and a bizarre robot man feel completely natural. Hey, that's no way and to I'm sure yeah. so hard. That's because they put him in that jumper. That jumper <laughs> is doing so much work. <laughs> that jumper was not the reason. Um, but yeah, that that was the last thing I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah, there is one one other new character. Well, there's one other major new character we haven't mentioned, which is the villain. Um, and this is the start, I think, of a streak of solid good villains. Which up until now, Marvel, there's been a lot of complaints about their villains. But barring Doctor Strange, I think every villain from this point on. Um, 
is well established, properly motivated, and just interesting. Mm. Um, yeah. And so that's that's Baron Zemo. Although he ain't a Baron in this, he's just a just a Soko- Sokovian with a grudge. But he, you said this was a um, trial run for Infinity War, um, and do you know what? Uh, in this, the villain wins. So it really sort of is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I I love the sort of red herring nature of his plot where it seems seems like he's your usual Marvel take over the world type of villain. He's got evil plans to unleash these soldiers. No, he just wants to watch these people tear each other apart. And yeah. um, it it works. And it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, ju- I just find him really interesting. Um, and they've never had a villain like this before. And it, it just works really well for me. Yeah. Because he's more of a, he's more of a psychological yeah. villain than like a... I punch you in the face and rinse and repeat a few times, kind of. Yeah. Oh yeah, he it... could, he couldn't take any of these people. It's <laughs> yeah. almost the, the first. Is it the f- the first Marvel film in which the villain doesn't have a similar power set? Yes. Uh, we, the, Iron uh, Man three. Oh yes, Iron ah. Man three. But he's still that's a character that can go that can go toe to toe with with the superpower, and also they can oh, shoot yeah. beams out yeah. of their hands. So I suppose there yeah, are some true. similarities. But um. <laughs> But yeah, it gives you a completely different kind of um, resolution because he, yeah, as you say, he's not someone that, that that could fight them physically, so he has to he has to go and fight them mentally. Um, and yeah, it, it does make Civil War one of certainly one of the more intelligent f- films they've made. But yeah, I suppose we should talk about the big fight at the end. Yeah. We're probably going to have to skip a lot of action, except to say whether it's good or not, just based on how long we've got. But the, the big fight at the end is really good because it's emotional in a way a lot of Marvel fights haven't been. No, I, I, it did. It was it, it really um, powerful that final fight. Certainly when they, you know, uh, get down into the final sort of corridor bit. Um, you know, earlier in the fight they're bouncing up sort of the um, missile silo thing. Yeah. But when they actually get to sort of the snowy corridor and actually just start duking it out, that's yeah, you you really feel every punch there. Um, and I, I thought they did really well in you know making it impossible to decide who you want to um, to beat the other person because you you do care about all of the characters in there. Well, except Bucky. Yeah, as, mu- <laughs> <laughs> as, as much as I say I'm on Tony's side. Um, not when it comes to actual physical fighting. I don't want anyone to win. I want them to just not be doing this. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's it's horror yeah. almost because you can't believe. But also uh, the the final fight, I think Tony is wrong because I know Bucky killed his parents, but like he was kind of being like controlled and wasn't There's in no any kind, kind of, of about it, Amy. it controlled himself yeah. at all. Like that that wasn't him, and so Tony's reaction you can understand it because emotionally compromised, but it's wrong. And so for the rest of the film, I would say it's very grey who's right, who's wrong. That end fight, yeah. Tony's wrong. Um, yeah. it, but it's it's like if Zemo had shown Tony that video at the start, Tony would have been mad. Uh, but it's unlikely Tony would have immediately started trying to punch Bucky to death. Um but showing him at the end after Tony and Steve both have all this wound up emotion and weird feelings and don't um, from everything that's happened up until this point, and he's lost Rhodey. Rhodey's um, had his spinal injury, and so Tony's already in a dark place. It, it took that's why it's a whole film and not one sequence, is it's taken all of that pressure to push him to that boiling point. Mm. And I, I, 
which is why Zemo yeah. and Zemo's plan are so excellent and, and why it works so well for me. That'll yeah. <laughs> that'll probably come up again later when we mention Star-Lord in another film, by the way. Yeah. Um, that sort of um, emotional compromise. I will just say as well, because that this film, I think, one of the things it does really well is call back to previous Marvel films without making it sort of a big song and dance of it. Um, and two, there's two examples of this within the sort of the final fight when um, we see the death of uh, Tony's parents and Howard says Sergeant Barnes just before he's he's murdered. You know they reinforce that these people knew each other, and it's not um you know they don't make something of it. It's just it's just a line he says and it either means something to you or it doesn't. Um, but there's so much power behind it, and the same thing happens again at the end of the fight, where Tony says, um, you don't deserve that shield, my father made that shield. And again, it can mean something to you, or it can mean nothing, but there's, there's, there's so much power behind it. And it's just two, two really great examples where they call back on their history without, um, you know, sort of a nod and a wink and saying, look, remember that? They're just, they're just dropping in there completely naturally, and it works so well, and it, it really takes the film to another level i think and that and that's the benefit of this weird matrix of uh like interconnected uh films and stories that they've got like we're tw- this, is, this is the 13th film um, yeah. so they've got that that enough history now that they can do that and it's <laughs> it's a weird crazy intricate machine it's brilliant um right that's way too long on that one so yeah. next doctor strange yes that's a particularly like landmark film though we say that every time but um um so we're on to doctor strange which is uh, one character thank god so um <laughs> this one uh is hey this is a landmark film because this is the film that introduces magic to the marvel <laughs> universe oh no um in a in a real no this is just magic way rather than a, it's science with a different name like thor uh, tried to get away with uh, yeah thanks the dark world so i thought doctor strange was quite interesting in that um I thought they cast, because we've said before, Marvel tend to cast sort of unusual characters and people that you wouldn't expect them to cast, but um, Benedict Cumberbatch was someone who'd been suggested by a lot of people and was already like quite famous. So I thought that was quite um, quite interesting, Bold a bit different to what they would normally do. Yeah. It felt it felt like stunt casting. No, it, not really, that, that sells it short, but it's, it, sounds, it felt a bit like stunt casting in the way that uh, Benedict Cumberbatch was really big right now, and he'd played a similar sort of char- he'd played similar sort of characters, especially Sherlock. Um, but he was getting cast in everything right now. He's in The Hobbit and things around the same time because he's just really big, and they haven't really done that before or since. I did wonder if because because it's a bit of a, a bit of an odd character, a um, bit of an odd concept, and there was a little bit of controversy surrounding the Tilda Swinton casting. That I wonder if maybe it was stunt casting. Well, didn't they cast him first? But oh, did they cast him first? No, oh. but even know. so, I think because possibly it would have been a tricky. But then they've all been tricky sales, and they've always done well. So maybe, maybe he genuinely was just the best audition. Maybe, maybe we're completely wrong. It wasn't stunt casting at all. Yeah, no offense to Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> One of the um, things I thought was quite interesting was that I was actually more interested in the ones that got away. So I actually thought when they said Joaquin Phoenix was going to play him, I thought that was really interesting, um, and would and then but then obviously didn't sign. And then when Ethan Hawke started getting um, names started getting chucked around because he had a really good working relationship with the director, and I could I could really see that one. I thought that would really work, uh, but then obviously he didn't go for it either. Um, and then yeah, as you say, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, was cast, and it was kind of like a 
Oh, because as you say, because there has been so much build-up around him on the internet, and people say, "Oh, wouldn't he make a great Doctor Strange?" Because he plays he plays um, geniuses that are you know obnoxious to people so well. Um, <laughs> and then they actually cast him, and it was sort of like, "Oh, oh, all right, they've gone that way." But when you actually read some of the background around it, it turns out that it had been in development so long he was their choice before they even went to Joaquin Phoenix but he couldn't do it and then okay after they after the oh. other casters dropped out they actually went back to him so it was almost they had him in mind even before he got this you know worldwide um fandom around yeah. him so so quite interesting it says something about the level marvel's uh, operating at that when uh, uh they release a casting choice that is pretty much perfect and exactly what you were expecting and picturing you go oh that's not very exciting yeah <laughs> that's yeah. A, an impressive level of uh, expectation we yeah. pile on them that we want to be surprised by everything like that yeah but um yeah don't want to make it sound like uh knocking the poor old benedict because um yeah, no, yeah he I, does do a think, great job. I do think he, he is a brilliant actor and and he did do really well with with the character so um so hats off to him for uh being better than um well never thought he'd be bad in the role but but yeah for uh making up for the lack of ethan hawk <laughs> <laughs> i just want to say as well the same thing that we saw in iron man in thor and in guardians as well where um the main character is kind of a douchebag in fact it, at the start of the film i would say he's a massive douchebag um and then obviously we get the progression where to the end of the film he's realized he's a douchebag and is trying to not be yeah this is this is very much iron man again mm. isn't it he's he's i know he is he is um obnoxious and um high and mighty in the comics but i don't think he's quite this i don't know tony stark ish he's not he's not in the film he's not just obnoxious he's like He's a complete douchebag. No, he isn't. I, I remember seeing a panel from an earlier comic of Doctor Strange where someone's like, hey, you can help this save this person's life. And he goes, there's no money in it for me, suckers, and storms out the Oh, room. okay, so that is so. actually quite true to the, um, to the comic then. It is a little, it's a little uh, problematic in that by the end of the film, he's sort of proven right. He uh, learns magic much faster than he's supposed to because he abuses magic in a way that people have told him not to to do mm. so like he uses yeah. the time stone i was going to say the time stone he uses the eye of agamotto to learn more than he should be able to in a short stretch of time and he shouldn't even be using the eye of agamotto in the first place but he was right to do so because that's how he saves the day and actually the things that you would assume are the mistakes he's making uh, and that by the end he would learn he shouldn't do and he should have more respect for this stuff he's actually proven right but, i mean hope, yeah. hopefully he's Hopefully he's learned not to drive at ridiculous miles an hour on a winding mountain road. I mean, at least he's probably learned that lesson. Yeah, comparing him to to Tony Stark, obviously, when he gets uh, when Tony gets kidnapped by terrorists at the start of um, Iron Man, you do you you know yeah. you do feel for him. But I have to say, when um, when Doctor Strange was in that car crash, I did I did laugh at him because he definitely yeah, deserved he, it. Yeah, he, he had that coming. <laughs> and then as well, when when they you know they've done this operation on him, and he's like, they've ruined me, and I'm like. Don't fault me. <laughs> and then, and then, um, Rachel McAdams says nobody could have done better, and he says I could have. And I'm like, shouldn't have been driving at ridiculous miles an hour, then should you? <laughs> Idiot. Yeah. At the, at, at the start of this film, I would say he's possibly my le least favourite like protagonist in the whole of the Marvel series. At the start. Oh, I do. I do love the fact that at the end of the film, it says drive safely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the credits, it's got a it's got a motor. You know. A, a car safety message which i just think is brilliant yeah 
Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so now that we've established we're all sociopaths, <laughs> um, what do we what do we think about the the selling point of this film that does make it different from other other origin stories, which is the magic and the weird psychedelic uh, other worlds that this takes us through, um, and how that stuff's portrayed and used? What do we think? Um, I think it was interesting how how well it fitted, really, because it would have been quite easy for you to be watching it and going. Yeah. This doesn't feel right, magic. You know, Marvel films have normally been about science. This is this is a bit out there. Um, but it didn't really feel like that. So there was. I think they probably did quite a good job of sort of fitting it in. But I, I think um, it works quite well that we haven't seen it up until now. Yeah. Because it um, ma- we haven't seen magic yet because everything involving magic is sort of an underground thing. People don't know about it, and people aren't meant to know about it because um, the you know the ancient one is a protector of this world from otherworldly forces that they don't want the public to know about so it it sort of makes sense whereas in the other films the threats in the other films have been very sort of public threats that people are going to find out about yeah i see, yeah. I see what you mean like um mm. Everything that happens here, they contain to mirror universes and undo so that no one ever ever learns about this stuff. Yeah. And um, Blumen, uh, Dormammu or whatever, he's like not actually in this world, so people don't look up in the sky and see him and go, Oh, no! What's that all about? Magic must be real. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was just going to say um, that yeah, I appreciate how blasé they are about the magic in the film. You know, as Matthew said earlier, they you know try to you know excuse it when they'd introduced it in the past. You know, they were almost like they were embarrassed by the more fantastical elements of um of the yeah. um the canon. But here they are, just you know, they're like, oh yeah, we'll we'll just practice this in a in a, in a mirror universe. Oh yeah, get your sling ring, and you know they just they just throw all this <laughs> stuff out there and um, expect you to go along with it. And and I think because they did it like that, you do you you um you do get swept up yeah. in it because they don't try and explain anything they yeah. are just like here's magic take it or leave it and um and yeah you yeah. uh take it with both hands but I, I love as well the fact that they have like a history of magic there's that you know there's there's ancient tomes and record departments mm. about magic and oh here they have a bunch of magic artifacts like oh this magic stick that turns into a whip and these magic boots that let you fly and this cape oh yeah that's an ancient artifact and you're like oh yeah okay i can it's it's sort of gives it that grounding without actually mm. giving it grounding quick shout out to the cape <laughs> best character in it and i i really liked as well i know it was just a silly little gag but when um modo gives him his wi-fi password i really appreciate that because there's mm. one thing i don't like about harry potter and i could talk about this is three podcast lengths about how much what i don't like about harry potter but um one thing i really didn't like about it is they're like oh yes we've got magic and we're secret from the muggle world but we still live in the dark ages um whereas here they were like no we've got wi-fi and I just really like that, that it wasn't like, we're an ancient magic organization, so therefore we don't have technology. So I, I really appreciate I know it was just like a throwaway gag, but I really, yeah. really appreciate it. What's the line? We're not savages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and actually, speaking of Modo, um, I thought he was brilliant. And um, Wong's really good as well. Um, and I know there was a lot of controversy surrounding it, but I thought Tilda Swinton was very good as the, um, as the ancient one. Uh, so I think the supporting cast is very good as well. Like with the Mandarin, the Ancient One was a trap, sort of. There, whatever they did, there were people going to have yeah. problems with it, and I can't say whether or not the choice they made was the correct one, but it was one of the things on the table that would have caused controversy, and it's yeah. the one they went for. And it's and... an even 
it was an even bigger kettle of fish because you've got the whole Tibet issue as well. Um, yes, it was very political uh, as well. So there was so... it was a, it was a political um, hand grenade as well as a um, you know social one. So. Yeah, and um, I think the idea of saying we've got this problematic Asian character, um, we want to remove them, um, but that means making them white. Um, using that as an excuse to add uh, excuse sounds wrong, but using that as an opportunity rather to add more female characters to a mm. universe that's quite light on them is is you know that's a clever choice even if it's still caused problems. Yeah, I I yeah, I don't um, really think there was a right choice to make in the situation because it's no. just such a political and social minefield. Um but I don't really think anybody can say what the right choice was there. And she's she's Tilda Tilda Swinton's, you know, a, a weirdly ethereal presence in anything she's yeah. in. She's um yeah. Yeah, she she's above human or something. She's like an elf, um, and yeah. so she really works in the role. Yeah. yeah, no, I was really surprised by her. Actually, I I thought because you know usually, um, you know she's made her name playing slightly weird, slightly otherworldly characters. Um, and what really surprised me about her portrayal of the ancient one was how um almost relatable it was. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting it at all. She played it really, um, almost mischievously, mm. um, and I it was she, I, I just really liked her as a character. It wasn't what I was expecting the role to be at all. So, yeah, yeah. and I, I just thought she was brilliant, and the, and the whole cast was brilliant. I mean, Amy's mentioned um, uh, Chiwetel and um, Benedict Wong, um, yeah. and Rachel McAdams as well was great. Yeah, Rachel McAdams is good. Yeah. Um, you know, um, there's two people in one film called Benedict. That's rare. Yes, yeah. that is but, rare. Um, <laughs> Just mentioning um, Jewett Ledger for playing um, Mordo, going back to a point Matthew made earlier about how Doctor Strange is kind of rewarded by the end of the film for doing everything wrong. Yeah. I think that yeah. um, because um, yeah, Steve wins by doing everything wrong and breaking all the rules, you can see why Mordo would turn against him because I actually really liked their friendship yeah. throughout the film. Yeah. Um, which I yeah, think is something yeah. that's completely absent from the comics. I think they're sort of enemies from the get-go, so I thought that worked really well. Um, but yeah. in seeing him so fragrantly disregard the rules that Mordo's so bound by and, you know, getting rewarded for it, even Wong's going, yeah, you know, do it, man, mess with time, you'll, you'll save the day. Um, you know, seeing everyone go, yay, for for breaking all these rules and... And finding out that the Ancient One's been doing the same thing the whole time. Yeah, it makes his fall believable and sympathetic as well. So I'll, I'll be really interested to see where they where they take him as a, as a character in the second one. Yeah, because he's caught, sort yeah. of played like an extremist. Like, oh, like, uh, you know, we have to... These are the rules and we have to stick to them. And, you know, any deviation from that is just playing with fire. Like, we can't... We absolutely cannot do that. And that's kind of... Yeah, like you say, believable, relatable, sympathetic extremism. Whereas, um, you know, other uh, open quote villains, close quote, in uh, in previous films that have been completely unrelated. Well, even um, Cassius in this film is a good example of yeah. that, isn't he? He's that kind oh, yes, of yeah, yeah. Um, unbendable but completely wrong belief in in something that's when you actually pause to look at it, totally crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is he? He's Matt Nicholson, presumably. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't know yeah. Captain Um yeah, he's sort of the kind of villain that we've we've almost seen before in Captain America and um Iron Man Two as well, sort of where he's like, This is what would happen if I, um the main character was evil. 
it's sort of that sort of yeah. mirror image well, again that we've seen before. Yes, yeah. Um, but also the way that he defeats um, the villains is again it's a little bit more cerebral than say previous films. We don't have that that traditional smackdown. No. Um, instead, yeah. he's got to use he's got to use his smarts that he's always telling us he's got to um, to solve this one. Yeah. So I think that's that's good in that it it draws on the um, the strengths of the character. Um, yeah. And and yeah, saves us another saves us another things falling from the sky. We've got to save everyone ending. Yeah. Yeah, I like <laughs> that they do that, and then he reverses it. Yes, they have yeah. the normal Marvel. They have the normal superhero. The city's destroyed. Ending uh, with a portal in the sky, and then Stephen Strange reverses it because that's what he can do and solves the problem another way, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, the yeah, the sort of thousand deaths of Doctor Strange, sort of time loop repeating thing is. Uh, I don't think they put enough weight on how how much of a sacrifice that is for him, because uh, there's that really good Doctor Who episode with a terrible name that I can't remember, where he does a similar thing, and that one really shows like how much he's sacrificing to just keep dying over and over and over again yeah. in this way. Um, yeah. And it doesn't really push it that hard, but when you actually think about what he's doing uh, yes, to, to keep yeah. Dormammu at bay, it's yeah. kind of amazing. Yeah, um, and the where he's come as a character... Yeah, it, yeah. It, plays on, it plays on strengths that he already has. It's like that sort of surgeon's patience. Whereas before in the film, he was really impatient to learn more. Now he's, um, he's, he's, he's like having to say, like, yeah, no, I have, to, I have to do this over and over and over again. Whereas Dormammu uh, doesn't have that patience. And he, only, he basically wins because the villain is like, oh, for God's sakes, I just want this to be over. <laughs> I think, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> he exasperates him until he leaves. <laughs> yeah. Heaven sent. That's the name of the Doctor Who episode. Right. Next film. Okay. So uh, Do- Doctor Strange is um, interesting overall because it introduces uh, crazy visuals to um, to the Marvel universe. It introduces uh, cra- like really bright, mad colors and weird geometric patterns and uh, images like hands replicating out of other hands and all these weird glowy things going on and just all, all these mad colors and images. But the, the thing Doctor, Doctor Strange does is it, it makes a point that these are, look how crazy and colorful this is. This is magic. And, and their focus is put on them as a special thing within the story. Uh, the next film, which is Guardians of the Galaxy, I think pushes that, it takes what Doctor Strange did and pushes it in a new direction, which is to make mad images and crazy colors and these weird things normal they are just the background of this film this this whole film is set against a background of uh crazy crazy colored skies and weird plant uh creature things wiggling around and uh ego uh constructing like statues of people inside weird shell pods out of tentacle things and just it's madness but it's just the backdrop against which this film happens and i don't know if it could have got away with that if doctor strange hadn't happened and i think that's interesting because that carries on through black panther and through infinity war and i just i just find the 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 way phase three looks from this point on i just find amazing um it's not a thing that this kind of summer uh blockbuster film does and now it is and it's great yeah so so we all loved uh, the first Guardians of the Galaxy, um, which was uh, did this thing where it introduced six is it six six, six new characters um, in the space of one film and did an amazing job of it and made us fall in love with them and with the with the cosmic world. Um, 
but the so their second outing they're already established and that gives it more time to focus on other things like the the relationships between them um and uh, actually having again one of the more interesting and complicated villains of the series which is ego yeah um well this is the other sequels up until this point so iron man 2 thor 2 captain america 2 and to an extent age of ultron have almost been almost sort of disappointing um because they just haven't lived up to the first one um this one's not Hmm. this one's not disappointing it completely lives up to the first one um and it's I would say it's on par, actually, with how good it is with the first one. I would say they're very really. Level. See, I would, um, I would say that it wasn't as strong as the really? first one. I would say that it is weaker. Yeah, yeah. When I saw them, I saw them at a cinema. It was a screening. It might have been midnight. I, I can't remember. Uh, but, you know, we went straight from one. It was a thing that the cinema had set up where they just screened them one after the other, which was good. That's fun. really cool. So I saw the first one, and then I immediately saw the second one. They were just running straight into each other, which was which was great fun. Um, but you know, I saw them like a side by side comparison, and even now, like I can watch the first one over and over, and I still get the same like <laughs> intense feelings and joy from it. It's such a joyous film, I guess. But um, the second one, I I don't know, it just didn't have the same impact with me i think i know the ending just wasn't as uh satisfying because it does sort of devolve into a uh all-out brawl between you know the hero and the villain whereas the, the the first one it's like um uh, Ronan reaching the surface of Xandar was an ine- an inevitability. It was going to happen, and they were just trying to delay it. They were just trying to hold it back against this this massive oncoming tide. They had no hope of doing it. They were just trying to do their best. But in this one, it feels like it seemed like much more clever in the first one how futile what they were doing was, but they were doing it anyway. In this one, it was you know that they they were equally matched and they had that big. Uh, construct punchy punch with the pac-man and the sort of misplaced humor um i i know it just didn't seem as intelligent or satisfying as a conclusion does that make sense yeah um the the first one really pushes that that theme of unity as well it's the it's the group coming together that saves the day they they save the day because they're a team and a family um and there's this one doesn't really do that um, the family stuff's still there, though, because it's Yondu who ultimately um, sacrifices himself. I'll tell you what, I never thought I'd cry over Michael Rooker. Mary Poppins, y'all. Yeah, but th- this one is pretty much just Peter Quill against... Well, Peter Quill against the world. <laughs> P- um, instead of them coming together and banding as, as one unit, it's literally just one guy. That's yeah, true. I, I it is... It is very much star lord's story um yeah with the, with the others feeling a bit sidelined but it does i think it does right by rocket and by um gamora uh, i said i said last time i didn't actually i think i cut this bit but i didn't i i said i didn't um particularly enjoy nebula in the first film i think she's a hell of a lot better here and their their like yeah. sister relationship feels a lot more real yeah. to me um yeah and when when they when they fight and when they find out what ego is doing together, uh, their stuff really works for me a lot better. And I, I so I think I think Gamora gets enough to do, and I think Rocket bonding with um, 
bonding with Yondu is uh, great as well. And uh, when Rocket tears up at the end, that that's um, sort of that's the part of the story I care more about than the Star Lord stuff, actually, because you can see how much he feels that, and he's lost this kindred spirit, and I I really like that part. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting what you say about um, this film being more traditional, and that you have the big punch up between two super powered characters. But what's quite interesting is that the, uh, the way that by the end of it, he's hit the reset button on that, in that James Gunn leaves the film taking away Quill's powers. Yeah. Meaning that he is just a human. And also, and ultimately, the film is about him realising that that's what he wants to be. Um, yeah. And possibly isolating him from the team in that sense helps with that with that overall story, that actually he doesn't want to be someone special. He just wants to be part of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, and maybe the fact the film reflects that is um, was the plan all along, but but who knows? <laughs> but yeah, what is interesting <laughs> is that by the end of it, he is yeah he is just um, just a human again. Um, and yeah, and actually, as I say, it's interesting that in we- in weakening him as a hero, he makes him better as a character. Yeah, almost like within the film itself, he acknowledges the issues of making Quill the central hero. So. And, and and course corrects mm. over the course of the narrative. So, and I suppose I, I suppose in a way it's about Quill uh, choosing to be with choosing to be with the family he's made and the family he's chosen, rather than uh, the family that he just happens to be biologically descended from. Yeah, because yeah. it's not. This isn't even just a superhero thing, but there's so many stories that just seem to. We're making a sequel. What can we do? And they all default to parental issues. DreamWorks, particularly. Oh God! Every second DreamWorks film is about. It. It just feels like a lazy, a lazy direction to take your story in, and it. it like the, the Amazing Spider-Man films went. We have this character in Peter Parker. What do we, we need to do? Something. We need to write a story about him. What do we know about him? Well, uh, he's raised by his aunt and uncle, not by his biological parents. And they went, oh, well, obviously the story is about him pining over who his real parents were. And that's... That's never been important. It's certainly not something Spider-Man does. Absolutely. His his father was um, Ben Parker. um, And his mother is May Parker. And that's the important thing about Spider-Man. He's one of the few who had a healthy home life. This has maybe gone a little off the rails now. I'm really sorry. But like, yeah, the the same thing happens in Iron Man 2. It's like, oh no, Tony uh, has... Tony has troubles with how he feels about the relationship he had with his father. And... It, it's yeah. just there so often, and it's so invasive, and it's so boring. Um, and I, I think Guardians of the Galaxy, the first one, was about Quill uh, overcoming uh, and moving past the death of his death of his mother, and that that handles it incredibly well. And actually, this one handles the father stuff a lot better than most as well. Um, yeah. So yeah. And um, I think possibly possibly some of that might be down to Kurt Russell because I think he is brilliant. <laughs> I love that casting because you needed someone you would love immediately yeah. and you could believe that uh, yeah. that Peter would be immediately starstruck by as well yeah. and yeah. that's Kurt Russell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah um, I thought he was really good. And so really good when, he, when he turns out to be evil, like I sort of suspected it might be going in that direction but I didn't really believe it because it was Kurt Russell. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it is quite an interesting bait and switch the film pulls with, um, uh, you know, it's setting up Aisha? Alicia? The the sovereign, 
as the uh, as the villains of the film, you know, they're going to come back and get their revenge, and 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 they do, yeah. but they're kind of useless at it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it is quite interesting that yeah he he builds up, he keeps you distracted with this threat that's building up in the background that he keeps reminding you of. You know, they turn up and try and recruit um, Yondu. Taser face gives them the coordinates they need. They turn <laughs> up and yeah, Taser face. <laughs> they turn up um, at the planet and everything. Um, so yeah, he does a really good job of keeping you distracted by thinking the main threat is slowly encroaching and is going to arrive and then you'll have the big showdown on the planet with um, yeah. you know, presumably with Ego helping them. But then it's revealed that actually they're just a distraction and he's the real big bad. So um, unfortunately it was, I did read a review that spoiled it for me before I saw the film. Oh, that sucks. So, um, so yeah. I, I knew he was the, the, the real villain from the start, but um, but yeah, you can see what James Gunn's doing with the narrative and, and keeping your attention elsewhere. So, I think it's because of that, David. I don't you because you told me don't read this review, Amy. It's really spoilery. So now I don't read any reviews. I just look at the star rating. <laughs> <laughs> see, I um, I I knew from the comics and stuff. I'd seen, uh, you know, things of Ego, the Living Planet, and he he always looks angry. If you if you look up if you Google Ego, the Living Planet, he always looks like. I mean, he has a goatee. It's a planet with a goatee. Um, so obviously I, evil. Yeah, I suspected from the get-go that he was going to be evil just because he's ego. So I, I, yeah, I, I don't know if that spoiled it, but yeah, that's 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 how I felt going in. It's like, oh, ego. Well, he's he's going to be bad. I didn't know that because in my in my head I conflated ego with the living planet from DC that I can't remember the name yeah. of yeah who is a green lamb so he's a good guy so in my head ego was that guy and he was actually on the side of the good guys so I, it was more of a surprise for me I do love that you get to see the planet with a face yes, for one yeah. shot in this film I wish yeah. we'd got to see him like talking or something it would have been the funniest and best thing but they didn't they didn't go yeah. quite that far um, I think they might get away with that now after Infinity War, but even then they were still holding back on some of the more comicy mad stuff. Um, uh, does anyone have anything else to say? Because I've got one one very quick last point. Uh, no, I don't think. Uh, I I would just say because we talked a lot about the first time around how it's one of the more how Guardians One was one of the more emotional films they'd made. Yeah. Um, and again, I think that's something that carries through with this film. Um, you know, it is about. Um, you know, I say more more parental issues, which they which they dealt with so so well in the first one. Um, but it mm. is the other ca characters. It's you know Rocket's journey um, and self acceptance. You know, as you say, his bond with Yondu is really um, really good. And the film, I think, the final shot of the film is his 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 Rocket crying. It is um, you know, um, with all the fireworks going off. So it actually ends on the shot of a character mourning another one, which which is quite rare. Um, yeah. For a film like this, but and also Yondu's sacrifice is really, really moving, um, and also some of the littler moments, just like when um, Drax and Mantis are talking, uh, and she reaches over and touches him. Yeah. And we just, haven't mentioned just, Mantis yeah. actually. Yeah. I, th I thought she was a really good yeah, addition, even if um, she doesn't have a great deal to do because most of, she spends most of the film in uh, the thrall of um, ego. Kurt Russell, but uh, she—I thought she was actually a really, really good um, addition to the team. And, yeah, like you're right. Her her interactions with Drax really sell it. Yeah, Sorry, but just that on. scene where yeah, he's just talking about his his daughter, um, and yeah, she touches him, and you just see the range of emotions go across her face. Um, but Drax is just sitting there 
in passive because he's you know uh, he, on the outside he's he's stoic, but on the inside he's still this ball of of uh, of grief, and it, it was just really good to to dwell on that really to actually show that this man might seem immovable yeah. from the outside, but you know, on the inside he's still still tearing up and and yeah and i thought that was really good that just the way he and it is something he did james dungan did in the first one as well just take a few little moments out from the, the main story to just build up characters with with some stuff that you wouldn't usually expect to see um in a big summer blockbuster yeah. um and not be afraid to pull on the heartstrings yeah and i just want to say as well i really really love um the parental relationship that all of them have with group because um they all like take equal equal parental um, responsibilities with him yeah. and I just think that's really great and I just really liked that co-parenting done right in this um, I, I know this is something really small and petty but uh, I think I said in the, the, the first Guardians of the Galaxy I really liked the way they didn't explain away the galactic distances you know they're travelling halfway across yeah. the galaxy and you know you don't see it you don't need to see it you don't care in this one they do explain it and it explains that there's yeah there's portals between key locations and they have to like jump between them and every time they do it uh you know messes with physics a little bit and i was i, I didn't think that was necessary See, I, I actually quite liked that as an explanation but the question is what came first the the need to explain space travel or the gag where all their faces distort. Yeah, well, so. I think I think maybe that gag was just the reason for all of it, to be honest, because it is rather hilarious. Because <laughs> that never fails to make me laugh. That is so funny. This film also this film also features the mother of all Stan Lee cameos. Oh yes. Oh yeah, where which links them all together, and I'm sure spawned a million YouTube videos that took the joke too far. The thing is, JJ, this is the film where they explain how the Guardians travel so far so quick and uh, science up that bit of hand waviness. But it's also the film where Rocket looks out the window and says, there's a guy riding an asteroid. He's just there yes. in space, which is the comickiest way of traveling through space that there is. Um, yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> like I said at the beginning, I think it it has a backdrop of uh comic book madness um at sort of a, just a base level of background noise which is higher than we've ever seen before it it, it feels more comic booky to me than a lot of a lot of the films up until this point yeah um one one quick thing i really wanted to cover and this this is the place to cover it is um this is the first film that properly reuses the theme music from the previous film in the series uh, Avengers 2 is really reticent to use the Avengers theme. Um, that, uh, someone else wrote the music for the second one. Sylvester wrote the original, but I can't remember who wrote the second. Elfman, possibly, um, wrote Avengers 2. Um, and he he throws like hints at the theme. He sort of points in the direction of it, but it doesn't get reused until the end credits. And so the emotions you associate with the music don't resurface. Um, which is the way theme music's supposed to work. But in this one, yeah. when the Guardians come together to fight Ego at the end, it plays the the real Guardians theme again. And it just struck me as so weird that it's taken them 13, 14 films to get to that point that yeah. they're willing to... If there's, if there's one thing I think the Marvel Universe has failed at, and uh, more so even than having villains that I care about particularly, it's that they've been really poor at establishing themes for these characters musically and mm. then uh using them effectively and, and this is the first film to do it and it, that actually gets better from here 
because uh, Infinity War uh, uses the hell out of the Avengers theme, um, and it's really good. Okay, next one. Uh, sorry. Yeah, that's a bit of a tangent, but that, that that's something I really cared about. Um, yeah, so the next film is Spider-Man Homecoming, which, oh God, here we go, is an interesting um, point in the Marvel Universe because it's the first... It's not the first co-production, is it? Because Incredible Hulk was. Yeah, Incredible um, Hulk's with Universal, I think. Yeah, but this one's a co-production with Sony. It's the first film after they made... Well, no, the, the Civil War was the first film to use Spidey, this yeah. character whose rights are owned by Sony. But now here we have a film that is technically a Sony film, but is also in the Marvel Universe and so uses the Marvel fanfare at the beginning and things. Um, and uh, I, I don't know how worried I was, but I was a little worried that because I knew they were planning on making the Venom film, which is coming out soon, God forbid. I keep forgetting about that. <laughs> and, and they keep threatening to make uh, like a Black Cat movie and a... Morbius um, as well. Mor Morbius! But they were going to make a young um, Aunt May film, which was oh, like, wow. the best idea ever. <laughs> hey, but what? this Aunt May's really young already. <laughs> That's a really good point. <laughs> um, which is which is the thing the film keeps reminding you. She hot. In case you didn't know, um, that's a bit weird. Because uh, because Tony's terrible. <laughs> True. Uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting. And I was a bit worried that uh, maybe it wouldn't feel like a Marvel film and it wouldn't fit properly in because they'd still be doing that weird setup for the sequel movies they wanted to make in this film and that it might cause problems. And there is none of that. And this is actually a really good uh, like example of a smaller Marvel film. Um, street level, as they like to say. Um, and I, I, yeah, I really like this I, one. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was really, really good. Um, I loved as well that it wasn't an origin yeah. story. Um, we knew it wasn't going to be because he'd already turned up in Civil War as Spider-Man. But I love that when it's just a throwaway line where he's like, oh, it was done by Spider. Because everybody already knows that. We all know. We don't need to see it again. Um, and yeah. so I thought that was really good. Yeah, no, I really liked this one as well. Um, and I thought one of the things that was works really well about it is that they found a new angle to tell um, a Spider-Man story because, you know, it is um, the third iteration we've had in, um, you know, however many years it's been since... Um, since Raimi's Spider-Man came out. I think it's 10. I think it, I think it's three versions of Spider-Man within 10 years, I think. Yeah, which um, yeah, is more, you know, I, I like Spider-Man as much as the next guy, but that's that's a little bit too much, uh, especially when some of that was Andrew Garfield. Um, hey, it's not his fault. <laughs> no. Well, some of it might be. But, yeah, I thought what they did really well is, yeah, they basically made a high school movie that had Spider-Man in. And that's an aspect of him as a character that we've never really seen um, in the films or from, you know, memories of watching the cartoon in that either. He's always, you know, the we always see him as the just graduated college, just trying to get his first job um, as a photographer kind of Spider-Man. That is, that is the image that I think most people have of him in their mind. So to take him back and actually focus on that college period, which in the previous films had sort of been the first act of the movie, as it were, yeah. To um to really dig deep into that and remind everyone that this is a child who's trying to be a superhero, I thought was a really yeah. interesting angle for the story and and helped to justify its existence. Really, make, stop it becoming a, oh here we go another Spider-Man movie. Actually, go this is something we've not seen before. Yeah, all yeah. all the Spider-Man films are always about him trying to juggle his superhero life with his real life, but actually that becomes so much harder 
when he's a child and his real life is actually like overlooked and controlled by so many adults and so many responsibilities yeah. you have when you're a child you have to be at a certain place at a certain time because you go to school every day and things um and so it becomes that much harder to be um yeah. a super superhero um and so all, all the parts in this where he misses the uh mathathlon god knows what Math they call it um that's what they're called in Mean Girls. Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, all that all that stuff um, is is heightened almost uh, more than it w was when he when he was actually an independent adult in the other films. But this um, this film can also contains possibly the best twist I've experienced in years. Oh yeah, like it. It's kind of weird to say, but it actually it absolutely like. Uh, what's the phrase? T-boned? I, th I think it T-boned me. T-boned? <laughs> don't people just say flawed? I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. That cannot possibly be the right <laughs> phrase. <laughs> no, right. But, you know, there's that. I think it's more of an American phrase. Probably. Um, like you know, a like, snake? You no, know, it's, um, it's, it's a kind of car crash. Yes, yeah, I've just Googled it. Crash head-on into the side of another vehicle. Oh, to make a T. Yeah, so like what? you're too, and it looks so like to a get T boned right, okay. is to be smashed in, smashed sideways, I suppose. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's um, Can it's. We stop you... saying T boned, please. <laughs> it doesn't sound good. All right, well, um, it it floored me. I was sat in the cinema, and when that happened, my mouth just dropped open, and I was just sat there like, but oh my gosh, like of course it seems so obvious now, but. It was, yeah, that, it, I thought that was an incredible uh, twist when Michael Keaton opens the door. Yeah, it takes you a little while to get it as well, because your first thought is, oh my god, he knows, oh my god, he's kidnapped her. And then you, and then yeah. as you keep watching, you're like, oh no, 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 he's just her dad. Oh, oh, okay. That's different. He's, he's been talking about, he's been talking about his family and his daughter this whole yeah. time, and it, mm. you never twig. Like, it's, it's really clever how the film uses your own racial prejudice against you. Mm. Um, in that way, <laughs> yeah. Because if she'd been white, you'd have gotten it. You'd have gotten it sooner. Um, but because because um, she's mixed race, um, you do not see that twist coming at all. Um, and it is absolutely brilliant how it does that. So that's genius casting. Um, and yeah. But um, speaking of genius casting, um, Michael Keaton is just always a good if you can get michael keen in your movie you do he he makes jack frost good jack frost <laughs> should be terrible it, 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 there shouldn't be anything good about that film because michael keaton's in it i love it but um but yeah i think and actually i think the vulture was a really really strong villain i think he's really really strong a, he, and he's very very good he was brilliant he was sinister and he was relatable he was it was just really interesting and um you could see that progression, you know, at the beginning of the film. He was he was really excited to be, uh, you know, having this big job in New York, clearing this stuff out, and then he just got more and more bitter as the film mm. went on. And it was it was just it was just brilliant. I, I really really. I, I think it's really clever film. as well when I he's love this when film. he's driving. Um, what's she called, Liz? Um, and yeah. Peter to the prom or the homecoming. Um, and Peter's sort of like trying to say all this stuff and trying not to talk about it and things um, while he's sort of talking to Liz. And you can see it all and clicking, you can just see it all clicking into mind. place in his mind. And it's, I think, just think that's really clever as well. And then I like the fact yeah. as well that he's not actually, because Spider-Man is just a kid, he doesn't want to fight him. He doesn't want to hurt him when he finds this out. Um, so he's just like, just go to homecoming. 
and don't try and stop me because I really don't want to have to fight a child. Um, so I think, I mean, he's a pretty bad dude, but I don't think he's the most evil villain we've seen. No, I was going to say yeah. that going off that um, thing saying about him, you know, being a pretty bad guy, I, I almost <laughs> think the one misstep the film makes with him is the scene where he kills the Shocker. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Shocker point one. Because, uh, you know, obviously we had to see him because he threatens Peter with murder, so we had to see that he was willing to do it. Because otherwise and it also, would sound like a hollow yeah. threat. Because but he's Michael Keaton, we need something to make us dislike him. Yeah, it's just almost the way he's like that guy's like, yeah, I, I know all your secrets. I'm going to the, I'm going to tell everybody. Um, and then he shoots him. The guy dies horribly, and then he just turns to the other and goes, "I thought that was the freeze ray or whatever it is." Um, but yeah, it's the fact that he's obviously not actually meant to kill this guy. And has, which is which and, is fair enough, but he's not as yeah. bothered about it as he should be. But yeah, yeah, but he he throws it away with a with a with a gag, and I I almost think that undercuts him as um such a good good character. But it's a, it's a minor minor misstep in in what's otherwise yeah. brilliant um, portrayal. But and like at the at the end of the film, there's a post credit sting where he's in he's in prison and he meets the uh, Scorpion, which is another Spider-Man villain. They're setting up the Spider-Man Six. But he, he, yeah, you know, he, um, you know, the vulture meets the scorpion in prison. He says, "Hey, I hear you know who Spidey is. Give me the deets, and uh, we'll go duff him up." And Michael Keaton sort of gets this look in his eye, and he says, "If I knew, no, I, I don't know who he is." And it sort of enforces that thing that he, he really doesn't want to be a bad guy, but it's just the way that, yeah, it's just the cards that yeah. life dealt him. If you, if you want. Um, this film again, something Marvel is very good at is um, it's very very funny. I would argue this is possibly their funniest film or it's certainly their most like laugh out loud kind of slapstick almost kind of funny i i, I don't think ragnarok is the next i don't film. think i've ever laughed like out loud in the cinema as much as i have yeah. when i saw spider-man homecoming it's so funny i was crying at points i was laughing so much it's it's really no, I, I agree really funny yeah no it is it is very funny this one and um, um Tom Holland's very, very good as well. Sort of a new name. Not been in a few things, but um, but he's very, very good. And I think he's very good at reminding you just how young Peter is. That bit where he's trapped under the rubble, and he's um, you know, and he's crying and he's saying, "Please help me. I'm trapped. I can't get out." Um, that's really yeah. difficult to watch because you're 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 remembering he's a child, um, and it's really, really yeah. good to see. And I think he's a, I think he's brilliant. You you say um. A strength of the film is how vulnerable he seems because he's a child. Um, it, it always felt a little like that's undercut by the fact that he's got all this support from Stark. The fact that his suit is essentially an Iron Man suit with uh, onboard AI and all these features and safety things that he's not even in control of and that can maybe save his life and things. So it's a very... Um, that always felt a bit wrong for the character. So I think it's a very good move the film makes in taking that away from him mm. and of being about whether it's similar to iron man 3 actually but it's about whether or not he's still spider-man when he doesn't have all the gadgets and of course he is because spider-man is um spider-man is defined by something uncle ben told him not by what he's wearing yeah um but i i think that's very clever and i, I sort of wish the trailers hadn't given that away because i knew that was coming because there are bits in the trailer where he's fighting in a hoodie and i was just like oh no i know the story now yeah that was a bit yeah. Of shame. yeah uh but it, it's it's yeah it's it's a very 
clever way of getting around that. But yeah, on the subject of Stark being there, because um, I have read some people have quibbles with, with um, the amount in which, which Robert Downey Jr. is in the film, um, and they feel it takes away from, from Spider-Man as a character, um, in that he, he, you know, he needs this... Um, rich wealthy sponsor in order to be someone but as as you said Matthew they're kind of missing the point of the uh the film if they don't come away with <laughs> yeah. uh, uh with the reinforced message that no he is he is Spider-Man um but yeah I yeah. think yeah the MCU connections um really work in this film again they're, they're, they're you know they're more obvious on they're more on the nose than some of the other ones we've talked about because I don't know basically I'm trying to find a way of saying it was great to see John Favreau back yeah, <laughs> everybody was happy. The, this is the film. It's weird, actually, that it happens at the end of a Spider-Man film that um, is the part, the point where Tony and Pepper uh, reconcile and decide to get married. Yeah. Um, but it is also very true to Tony Stark that he would have, he would be doing that on the spur of the moment and not really for necessarily the best reasons, but also you know he means it, and it is yeah. I I yeah. really love that last scene. Yeah. When um Peter makes a really conscious decision to actually to not get signed into the Avengers uh, and that, that actually gets sort of undone in a later film mm. but we'll talk about that when we get to it and um, you know Tony respects his decision he says actually that was a really um, mature decision and I, I haven't got any arguments against that it, it, it was Tony who wanted to sign him into the Avengers and it was, it was uh, Peter that said no yeah, and that that's of a piece with him learning that he can be Spider-Man without the suit. Um, yeah, exactly. It's le- learning that uh, he can be a hero on his own level without needing to join the Avengers, which is all he wanted at the beginning. He he realizes he doesn't need that, and he can make a difference in his own way. Um, yeah, to become the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I know Spider-Man has been in the Avengers, not that, and in the Fantastic Four as well in the comics, but I always think Spider-Man works better as a solo character. He's he. I enjoy seeing him bounce off other characters and and appear in their stuff and uh, them appear in his. But I I always I never enjoy him as a team character. I always think he's much better um, as your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man on his own. Right. Well, we've overrun again, so uh, we'll take a break there, and we'll be back soon with Thor Ragnarok. Um, for now, thanks for listening, um, and you can find us and follow us at Herdmind on Twitter. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>